Hello and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm Derek Hand, Head of School of English in St. Patrick's College, Dublin City University. The following lecture in this series, Dublin, One City, One Book, 2015, The Barrytown Trilogy, is given by Kevin Power, Creative Writing Fellow at St. Patrick's College, Dublin City University. Everybody Speaks, Utopia and Polyphony in Roddy Doyle's The Commitments. The plot of Roddy Doyle's first novel, The Commitments, seems almost too familiar to need retelling. It's about a group of working-class young people from the fictional North Dublin suburb of Barrytown who form a band to perform covers of American soul standards. They rehearse, they bicker, they practice their instruments until they begin to get better. They perform their first gig in the hall of a community centre, cheered on by their mammies and friends. They collect a loyal following and begin to perform in professional venues in the city centre. They almost get a record contract, but just as Jimmy Rabbit, the band's ringleader and manager, is negotiating a deal with the label, the band breaks up in a hail of recriminations. Jimmy, undeterred, sets about forming a new band. This one, he declares, will be country punk. In Doyle's telling, this bittersweet story has some of the simplicity and resonance of a fairy tale. But like all fairy tales, the commitments has repeatedly been mined for deeper meanings. As many critics have observed, it is inescapably a novel about class, and hence about politics. It is also inescapably a novel about the vexed questions of Irish identity in the late 20th century. In forming a band to perform Dublin Soul, the members of the commitments are fashioning their own idiosyncratic brand of Irishness. They are also, as the text repeatedly makes clear, fashioning an identity as members of a working class that they conceive of, once again, in their own idiosyncratic terms. The great Marxist critic Frederick Jameson maintains that all works of art are political fantasies. That is, there can be no art without an attendant politics, and all works of art address political questions in overt or covert ways. The commitments may, at first glance, seem to wear its politics lightly. It is, formally speaking, a comedy, complete with pratfalls, catchphrases, romantic misunderstandings, and a great soundtrack. But it is also unmistakably a political novel, not in any simplistic or overt sense, but rather in the sense that the text embodies certain radical ideas about community and possibility, that it formally embodies what I will call, borrowing from Jameson, a utopian politics. In an analysis of utopian ideas formulated in a 2004 essay entitled The Politics of Utopia, Jameson proposes that a utopia is a political idea that hopes to transcend or exist outside politics, but that must inevitably begin inside politics. This holds true for the utopian imagined community proposed and tested in the commitments. In fact, the very first thing that happens in the novel is a conversation about politics. When Outspan and Derek approach Jimmy with the idea that he will manage their new band, Jimmy responds with what has become a famous analysis of the Irish class system, couched in unselfconsciously racist language. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Jimmy situates himself and the novel's other characters in a position of maximum social and political disadvantage. Appearing as it does in the opening pages of the novel, Jimmy's analysis lays the groundwork for the text's playful engagement with the possibility of transcending these social and political disadvantages through the bringing into being of what Frederick Jameson calls an imaginary collective, the band itself. 
Forming a band is, for Jimmy and the other members of the Commitments, a utopian project. That is, a space that will exist outside politics. In The Politics of Utopia, Jameson argues that a utopia is always a project of the imagination, but that its imaginative aspect is always grounded in an encounter with the shaping forces of contemporary capitalist reality. In other words, in the utopian attempt to escape politics, we find that the political inevitably returns in some new form. Jameson writes, Wishes cannot always be successfully fantasized. Such is the operation of the constraints of narrative as well as of the real. Constructions cannot always be built. Such are the constraints of raw materials and the historical situation, which stand as the statics and dynamics, the elementary laws of gravity and locomotion, of the building of imaginary collectives. The historical situation in which the commitments find themselves has been articulated by Jimmy Rabbit. To occupy a position of maximum disadvantage as a member of Dublin's Northside working class is, for these characters, the real that constrains their efforts to build an imaginary collective. And the narrative arc of the novel would seem to confirm Jameson's pessimism. The band, after all, does not succeed. The imaginary collective they have created falls apart. But we might say that to succeed for the commitments would be to succeed in terms of the capitalist system that has done so much to marginalise them. Their mission as a band is never conceived in terms of commercial achievement. It is conceived in terms of soul. It is, of course, Jimmy Rabbit who articulates the utopian possibilities of forming a band. Why are you doing it, buying the gear, rehearsing? Why did you just form the group? It's hard to say, said Outspan. That's what Jimmy had wanted to hear. He jumped in. Yous want to be different, isn't that it? Sort of, said Outspan. Yous don't want to end up like, he nodded his head back, these tossers here, am I right? The utopia of soul, for the novel's characters, suggests the possibility of transcending Irish identity politics altogether, of establishing an identity that is wholly other, wholly separate from the disadvantages Jimmy has just outlined. It is significant that this possibility is not articulated in political terms. As Frederick Jameson writes in The Politics of Utopia, Utopia emerges at the moment of the suspension of the political. Political institutions seem both unchangeable and infinitely modifiable. No agency has appeared on the horizon that offers the slightest chance or hope of modifying the status quo. And yet in the mind, and perhaps for that very reason, all kinds of institutional variations and recombinations seem thinkable. In the commitments, it is American soul music, rather than any aspect of Irish culture or history, that offers Jameson's moment of the suspension of the political. That soul offers the possibility of a non-Irish utopian space is explicitly figured during one of Jimmy Rabbit's motivational workshops in Joey the Lips Fagan's garage in which he explains to the rest of the commitments the transcendent, utopian politics of soul. Soul is dynamic. So are you. It can't be caught. It can't be chained. They could chain the black slaves, but they couldn't chain their soul. Their souls didn't pick the fucking cotton, though, did they now? Good thinking. Fuck off a minute. Soul is the rhythm of the people, Jimmy said again. The Labour Party doesn't have soul. Fianna fucking fall doesn't have soul. The Workers' Party ain't got soul. The Irish people, no, the Dublin people, fuck the rest of them. The people of Dublin, our people, remember need soul. We've got soul.
Jimmy dismisses the standard political institutions of Irish working class identity, the Labour Party, Fianna Fáil, the Workers' Party. He explicitly rejects a formalised socialist praxis in favour of the utopian possibilities of soul. He also rejects the concept of the Irish people in favour of Dublin people, proposing a very specific Dublin-based identity as the locus of his emerging utopian conception of political possibility. Thus, the moment of the suspension of the political is also the moment of the return of the political in a new guise, in the formation of a new utopian identity that is inescapably polarising and politicised. Here Jimmy builds on his original analysis of Northside working-class Dubliners as uniquely disadvantaged. He reclaims or rewrites this sense of maximum disadvantage as the basis of a utopian imaginary collective. In this sense, the commitments repeatedly figures the opening out of utopian possibility, the escape from politics, as the formation of another politics. But a politics no longer tied to the constraints of raw materials and the historical situation, as Jameson puts it. The search for an imagined community of utopian possibility in this novel necessarily involves a newly politicised opposition to other communities. A reconstruction of identity within the utopian project of the band's imagined community. Thus the political returns to the putatively non-political utopian space. However, Doyle's novel does not simply foreclose utopian possibility by showing it to be inevitably haunted by the return of the basely political. Instead, the text itself embodies a utopian possibility, which is that in utopia, everybody speaks, all voices are legitimate and no one voice predominates. What is especially significant is that Jimmy's elaboration of the utopian possibilities of soul is not allowed to congeal into a monologue. When he begins to speak, Jimmy is immediately interrupted by an unidentified member of the band. Soul is dynamic, so are you. These interruptions occur throughout the novel. No character is ever allowed to deliver a speech without interruption. The Commitments, as befits a story about music, is very much a novel of voices. It is, in the term coined by the Russian formalist critic Mikhail Bakhtin, a polyphonic novel, a term Bakhtin himself adapted from musical terminology. In The Commitments, the voice is an instrument of persuasion, seduction, satire and instruction. There is no central voice. We might expect Jimmy Rabbit's voice to dominate the text, but in fact, Jimmy's speech remains a part of the choral interchange of voices that makes up most of the text of the novel. The Commitments is emphatically an ensemble piece. It dramatises and embodies a communal ethic in which no one voice is positioned as the privileged arbiter of meaning. The anti-individualist ethic of soul is explicitly figured in the novel as the music of the working class and the novel repeatedly reinforces a polyphonic ethic in which no one voice, not even that of the third-person narrator, is granted final authority. In the utopia of soul, there are no authority figures, no privileged utterances, no last word. There is only what Bakhtin refers to as a plurality of independent and unmerged voices and consciousnesses, a genuine polyphony of fully valid voices. Bakhtin outlined his theory of the polyphonic novel in his classic book Problems of Dostoevsky's Poetics, published in 1927. He writes that in a polyphonic novel, a character's word about himself and his world is just as fully weighted as the author's word usually is. It is not subordinated to the character's objectified image as merely one of his characteristics. 
nor does it serve as a mouthpiece for the author's voice. It possesses extraordinary independence in the structure of the work. It sounds, as it were, alongside the author's word, and in a special way combines both with it and with the full and equally valid voices of other characters. Bakhtin finds in Dostoevsky's work not a multitude of characters and fates in a single objective world illuminated by a single authorial consciousness, rather a plurality of consciousnesses with equal rights and each with its own world, which combine but do not merge in the unity of the event. The idea of a Dublin soul band becomes the commitment's central image of the imagined or imaginary community in which voices combine but do not merge, in which consciousness is plural and no single voice dominates. In the commitments, the act of speaking is the locus of utopian possibility. But crucially, to speak in this novel is always to be answered. To have one say is immediately to be reminded that everyone else will have his or her say too. In the early years of the 21st century, another novelist of Roddy Doyle's generation, the great and greatly anxious postmodernist John Banville, would begin his 2004 novel Shroud by asking, who speaks? Expressing, in two words, a profound postmodern anxiety about the validity and cohesion of the narrative voice. Roddy Doyle, writing a quarter of a century earlier, expresses no such radical doubts. For him, the answer is simple. Who speaks? Everybody speaks. Whereas Banville articulates the postmodern identity crisis of the white male bourgeois subject, reprivileging that subject in the process, Doyle makes the more quietly radical gesture of refusing to privilege any one subject, any one voice, above any other. To speak in the commitments is to be heard, but it is also immediately to be challenged, shouted down, made fun of, contested. As Bakhtin writes in speech genres, any understanding of live speech, a live utterance, is inherently responsive. Any utterance is a link in the chain of communication. The commitments embodies this chain of communication in a polyphonic communality, a many-voiced chorus of characters who may be economically disenfranchised, but who locate the possibility of a new kind of enfranchisement through their engagement with a chain of communication in which no one voice predominates. The novel's subtle interrogation of traditional power structures can be seen in its ceaseless chorality. This is a novel in which every opinion meets its opposite, every statement meets its contradiction. The commitments may not succeed in any capitalist or commercial sense. They may not create a powerful new politics of identity for the North Side Dublin working classes, but they do embody a utopian ethic in which every participant, not only every member of the band, but also every member of the audience, is granted the right to speak, the right to be heard, and the right to be argued with. The responsive voice in this text is just as important, just as authoritative, as the voice that is being answered. This ethic finds expression in the textual form of the novel itself. The commitments eschews many of the traditional trappings of the novel. Several critics have remarked on the novel's superficial similarity to a play script or a screenplay, which testifies to the text's commitment to the voice as its central locus of expression and possibility. The novel, historically, has been an art form of, for and by the bourgeoisie, and as such, it has generally aspired to present an objective discourse centred on a trustworthy narrative figure or voice who offers final interpretations of the events depicted. 
Doyle rejects almost all of the trappings of the bourgeois novel. The scrupulous analysis of psychological processes, the lengthy descriptions of domestic interiors, the carefully constructed dramatic reversals. For example, the most dramatic event in The Commitments happens off stage. The breakup of the band occurs while Jimmy Rabbit is securing a record deal. And then there is the question of the narrative voice itself. Here, Doyle offers his most quietly radical challenge to the traditional bourgeois novel. Nominally speaking, The Commitments is narrated in the third person. But this third person narrative voice bears very little resemblance to the scrupulously distant, determining narrative voice of classically Jamesian fiction. In The Commitments, the voice of the third person narrator is scarcely distinguished from the voice of the characters. Dermot McCarthy, in his 2003 study of Roddy Doyle's fiction, argues that Doyle's novels have followed a trajectory from the conventional, focalised third-person narrator of the Barrytown trilogy to a self-conscious and unreliable first-person narrator protagonist of later novels, such as The Woman Who Walked Into Doors and A Star Called Henry. However, the third-person narrative voice of The Commitments is less conventional than it may first appear. Rather than being focalised in McCarthy's sense, that is, focused upon one or several characters whose viewpoints are given privileged representation, the narrative voice of the commitments insistently refuses to privilege any single point of view. Who is the central character of the commitments? There isn't one. We must return to Bakhtin's polyphonic novel, in which he finds not a multitude of characters and fates in a single objective world, illuminated by a single authorial consciousness, rather a plurality of consciousnesses with equal rights and each with its own world. What is remarkable about the commitments is the manner in which Doyle suppresses or elides the single authorial consciousness in the interests of the voices of the characters themselves. Here again, Doyle dispenses with the bourgeois mechanics of the novel in favour of a polyphonic text that refuses to accord final authority even to its own third-person narrator. As McCarthy notes in the novels of the Barrytown trilogy, Dublin dialect is the norm and does not contrast significantly with the narrative voice because Doyle consciously set out to use a narrative voice as close to the characters' voices as possible. We see Doyle's third-person narrative voice in action on the novel's first page. Jimmy Rabbit knew his music. He knew his stuff all right. You'd never see Jimmy coming home from town without a new album or a 12-inch or at least a 7-inch single. Jimmy ate Melody Maker and the NME every week and Hot Press every two weeks. He listened to Dave Fanning and John Peel. He even read his sister's Jackie when there was no one looking. So Jimmy knew his stuff. This is the third-person narrative voice speaking. But there is nothing that overtly distinguishes its mannerisms and tonality from the mannerisms and tonality of the characters in the novel. In Doyle's most radical gesture, the third-person narrative voice, or single authorial consciousness in Bakhtin's phrase, is subsumed in the chorality of the chain of communication that makes up the novel. The utopian possibility of a world in which everybody speaks and is answered extends even to the formal aspects of the text. In refusing to privilege any single central character, in refusing even to privilege his own surrogate voice as author of the text, Doyle celebrates a heterogeneity of discourses that gives rise to an imagined community of vocal exchange. In this way, Doyle avoids directly posing the profound questions raised by his text. Instead, he suggests that such profound questions should themselves be seen as less important than the utopian possibility of a community in which everybody speaks.
as Lorraine Peru writes in an article on Irishness in the Commitments. Irishness in the Commitments is no longer a matter of definition or semantics, since Doyle does not ask what it means to be Irish. Rather, identity manifests itself in the sheer intensity of the dialogues, the slang and the lyrics of blues and soul music. Roddy Doyle's commitment, if you'll excuse the pun, to the principle of chorality is what enables him to address troubling and profound questions about class, identity and political possibility in rich and suggestive ways. The commitments may not achieve their aim of creating a new politics of Dublin soul, but the novel in which they appear is nonetheless a celebration of their central discovery that in speaking for, with and against one another and the world, they can begin to open up new spaces in which that new politics might at last be imagined. You've been listening to Kevin Power in this UCD ScholarCast as part of the series Dublin, One City, One Book, 2015, The Barrytown Trilogy. You can download a transcript of this lecture at ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. Thank you.